Hey everyone, it's Patrick Beeman here, founder of Inside the Boards, and you're listening to Dr. Greg Rodden for our Physiology by Physio podcast, talking about steroids, specifically glucocorticoids. People seem to think that steroids can do just about anything, and they can do a lot, but not anything. Uh, I'll try to clarify the story a little bit. Okay, so glucocorticoids have broad-ranging effects on almost all organ systems in the body, and they play a crucial role in maintaining homeostasis as a part of everyday cycles, as well as gearing us up for the fight-or-flight stress response. In the immediate stress response, catecholamines like epinephrine and norepinephrine are the first to respond within a few seconds. Then other hormones like growth hormone and glucagon respond within a few minutes. And finally, glucocorticoid levels prominently rise in the blood after about 30 to 60 minutes. Like other steroid hormones, when cortisol is released into the adrenal venous blood, it needs to be carried by a lipophilic protein carrier. It uses glucocorticoid binding globulin for this task. Then, once this hormone carrier complex reaches its target cell, the cortisol can pass through the lipid bilayer of the cell membrane and bind to the intracellular receptor and modulate gene transcription. Okay, so what are these various effects of glucocorticoids that I keep referring to? Well, I think it would be easiest to break these down into systems. We'll cover the effects of glucocorticoids on the immune system, uh, metabolism, skin, bone, and connective tissue, the cardiovascular system, psychiatric effects, and for good measure, also on fetal development. All right, let's start off with the immune system. Glucocorticoids have a pretty complex relationship with the immune system, but in general, cortisol, especially at increasing doses, has anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive effects. For example, jumping right into it, cortisol induces lipocortin, which acts to inhibit phospholipase A2. Phospholipase A2 is the key to initiating the arachidonic acid pathway to produce prostaglandins and leukotrienes. Prostaglandins and leukotrienes are very important pro-inflammatory mediators for many tissues in the body. Thus, by shutting this down at the level of phospholipase A2, glucocorticoids inhibit pro-inflammatory signaling. Cortisol also inhibits neutrophil adhesion to vascular walls, inhibiting diapedesis and transmigration. We often call this a demargination effect. So if you see a patient with an unexplained high white count, make sure to ask if they've been on steroids recently. Other effects of glucocorticoids on your white cells, uh, you expect to see lower eosinophil counts, lower lymphocyte counts, and lower overall immunoglobulin levels in patients on glucocorticoids. Cortisol also stabilizes white cell membranes, like those of mast cells, preventing the release of their inflammatory mediators like histamine. Hence, glucocorticoids are used to treat atopic diseases like asthma and eczema and allergies. Cortisol also slows down elements of the adaptive immune system. For example, it inhibits the actions of IL-2 or interleukin-2, which is crucial for T-cell proliferation. For this reason, glucocorticoids are frequently used to prevent organ transplant rejection. Thus, cortisol slows down both the innate and the adaptive immune systems, and overall has anti-inflammatory immunosuppressive effects. Okay, now for the metabolic effects of glucocorticoids. Cortisol will stimulate gluconeogenesis in the liver, and it will globally interrupt insulin signaling. So why is this helpful? Well, in daily life, this is a mechanism to counteract hypoglycemia, like during overnight fasting. 
It's also helpful as a part of the stress response to increase the glucose available for glucose-dependent tissues like the brain and red blood cells. When persistently elevated, glucocorticoids also have a catabolic effect on lean body mass and fat mass by shutting down protein synthesis and simultaneously upregulating lipolysis and proteolysis. The catabolic products, like amino acids, are mainly used by the liver for gluconeogenesis. And just think about it, as a part of the stress response, we no longer want muscle and adipose tissue to be in an anabolic mode. Instead, we want to use their stored substrates for more important things elsewhere. So to summarize what we've said, glucocorticoids have an overall catabolic effect on metabolism and are important for the prevention of fasting hypoglycemia. Okay, so that's immune effects and metabolic effects. Now, what about the effects of glucocorticoids on skin, bone, and connective tissue? Well, again, persistently elevated glucocorticoid levels signal that we're stressed out and we can no longer do the anabolic building thing. So they act on the skin, bone, and connective tissue by inhibiting fibroblast proliferation and collagen formation, which thins out the skin, produces striae, and it will weaken the bones. Okay, we've done their immune effects, their metabolic effects, and their effects on skin, bone, and connective tissue. What about the cardiovascular system? Well, glucocorticoids, like cortisol, globally upregulate adrenergic receptor expression, especially alpha-1 receptors at the blood vessels and beta-1 receptors in the heart. Plus, cortisol instructs neuromuscular junctions to store up more catecholamines, allowing for tissue responsiveness to sympathetic stimulation. And this has widespread effects on the cardiovascular system by permitting increased cardiac output and permitting increased vascular resistance and mean arterial pressure. Earlier, we talked about adrenal crises. Well, when we lack glucocorticoids in an adrenal crisis, this has a negative impact on the cardiovascular system, right? Because glucocorticoids are so important to our ability to maintain cardiac output and vascular tone. Patients in an adrenal crisis lose out on this, and things can spiral out of control into full-blown hemodynamic collapse. To try to help these patients in an adrenal crisis, we give fluid boluses, uh, we give IV dextrose, and you guessed it, we give glucocorticoids, typically in the form of IV hydrocortisone. Okay, so we've done their immune effects, we've done their metabolic effects, we've done their effects on skin, bone, and connective tissue, and we've talked about their cardiovascular effects. Next up, I want to briefly mention that as steroid hormones, glucocorticoids permeate the blood-brain barrier and thereby also exert effects on the central nervous system. We actually already knew this fact, though, because we said that cortisol is the key negative feedback regulator for CRH and ACTH production in the hypothalamus and anterior pituitary, which are in the brain, right? Well, glucocorticoids also have psychiatric effects, which aren't fully understood, but basically persistently elevated levels can mess with your sleep, producing insomnia and decrease REM sleep when you're stressed out. Also, glucocorticoids can alter your mood, either towards mania or depression and they may even lower the seizure threshold for some patients. Also, glucocorticoids may be helpful to reduce intracranial pressure in patients with intracranial hypertension. Anyways, last but not least, we should mention the effect of glucocorticoids on fetal development. You probably already learned this, but to a fetus, spikes of glucocorticoids are also associated with stressful events, like the stress of labor and delivery. As such, mom and baby's glucocorticoids, which spike during labor and delivery, uh, help to transition the baby to the outside world. Well, how so? Well, think about the cardiopulmonary effects. Cortisol helps to mature the lungs by inducing surfactant production by the type 2 pneumocytes. Additionally, glucocorticoids start to decrease the prostaglandin synthesis levels of the neonate, 
which helps to close the ductus arteriosus. Altogether, this has the effect of preparing the lungs to commence in gas exchange, and it gets the cardiovascular system ready to direct the blood to the lungs for said gas exchange. So, pretty cool. Okay, so to summarize, we covered the systemic effects of glucocorticoids, from their anti-inflammatory immunosuppressive effects, to their metabolic effects like the prevention of hypoglycemia, to their thinning effects on the skin and the bone, to their cardiovascular effects, i.e. they set up the heart and blood vessels with adrenergic receptors, to their wacky psychiatric effects, and finally to their effects on the fetus and the neonate. So clearly, glucocorticoids play a role in many systems and exert many physiologic effects. Like anything else, we want the right balance of them. When we get out of balance, we start to suffer. For example, when we have chronically elevated stress levels, we get chronically elevated glucocorticoids, and this can cause many issues, from immune suppression and predisposition to infection, to thinning of the bones and increased fracture risk, to diabetes and hypertension and increased cardiovascular disease risk. Too much glucocorticoids in our system is basically a bad thing. Okay, now, do you recall the name for the full-blown syndrome characterized by glucocorticoid excess? What's called Cushing syndrome. So let's take a few moments to discuss Cushing's. What is the most common cause of Cushing syndrome? Well, it's actually exogenous corticosteroid exposure, whether prescribed or bought over the counter. But what's the most common endogenous cause of Cushing's? Well, the most common endogenous cause of Cushing's is an ACTH-secreting adenoma of the pituitary gland. This is technically named Cushing's disease rather than Cushing's syndrome. There are other potential causes, but exogenous intake and Cushing's disease are definitely the two most common. For the boards, and to impress your preceptors, you'll also want to know that some cases of Cushing's are due to ectopic secretion of ACTH. So what does this mean? Well here, ACTH is being secreted as a part of a paraneoplastic syndrome, from an abnormal place or from an ectopic tissue. This is sometimes seen in the setting of small cell lung cancer. Regardless of the cause, Cushing's syndrome will produce a classic presentation in your patient. Do you recall any of its features? Well, all of the features are from excess glucocorticoids, of course, so try to picture this patient in your head. A classic Cushing's patient will exhibit weight gain, uh, especially truncal obesity. Uh, they'll have a big, round moon face with rosy red cheeks. Then you look at their skin, and you notice that it's thin, and it has these purplish stretch marks over the abdomen, called striae, from the impaired fibroblast function. Plus, their thin skin is very weak. Even worse, because of the immunosuppression, they have trouble healing their wounds and may develop pretty severe infections. Plus, because of the persistent hyperglycemia and insulin resistance, they can develop frank diabetes mellitus, which only worsens the integrity of their skin and predisposes to additional wound infections. You may also notice muscle wasting in a Cushing's patient, especially of their arms and their legs, from the catabolic effects on skeletal muscle. You may also notice a buffalo hump between the shoulders or other fat pads, which are thought to be due to a weird consequence of hyperinsulinism. Cushing's patients also have thinning bones, predisposing to osteoporosis and fractures. There's certainly more features to Cushing's, but I think you have a pretty clear picture of the patient now. Okay, so you suspect your patient has Cushing's syndrome. How do you make the diagnosis? Well, you want to document the elevated cortisol levels. So you can use a 24-hour urine cortisol level and or you can get an early morning cortisol level. If these are high, then you know that your patient has Cushing syndrome. Great, now we've diagnosed our patient with Cushing syndrome. So what do we want to do from here? 
Well, now you'll actually want to check the ACTH level. So why check the ACTH? Well, we really need to get to the bottom of what's causing the Cushing's. If ACTH is high, then you know it's an ACTH-dependent process, and you should start thinking mainly about central processes, like a pituitary adenoma. But if ACTH is low, it's an ACTH-independent process. In other words, you know that the culprit is simply high levels of glucocorticoids, and now you need to determine whether there's exogenous corticosteroids on board, the most likely culprit, or whether there's some tumor producing glucocorticoids. You rule this out with imaging, like an abdominal MRI or a CT. Okay, but what if your testing shows that ACTH was elevated, not low, so this is an ACTH-dependent process? Well, then you need to follow a different line of thinking. So what's your next step for this patient? Well, you'll want to do a test called the high-dose dexamethasone suppression test. Dexamethasone is a potent synthetic glucocorticoid, significantly more potent than cortisol. And after receiving 8 milligrams, a high dose of dexamethasone, the hypothalamus and anterior pituitary will shut down their CRH and ACTH production. So what does this mean? If the high-dose dexamethasone suppresses the ACTH level, then you can be confident that it's a central process and you just need brain imaging. But if there's no response, then you know the ACTH is coming from another source outside of the brain, because again, high-dose dexamethasone will shut down ACTH release from the brain. So now you need to be concerned for ectopic production of ACTH. And this is usually part of a perineoplastic syndrome, like from small cell lung cancer. Okay, so we've covered the features and workup of Cushing's. Briefly, how do we treat Cushing's? Well, if it's due to exogenous steroids, remember this is the most common cause overall, then cut down or stop the exogenous steroids. If it's from a pituitary adenoma, which is the most common endogenous cause, then you remove the pituitary adenoma. And for other causes of Cushing's, you may need a more advanced approach. 